0: This is Big Sky Lead, a dive into the stories about how government and politics drive the direction of Montana. This podcast is from the reporters of the Montana State News Bureau in Helena, your eyes and ears on state government. It's produced by me, Tom Bridge. Our team brings you their reporting and the stories behind the coverage as the Montana State Legislature meets in an unprecedented session. Montana is set to get about $2.7 billion from the American Rescue Plan Act passed by Congress earlier this month. The state legislature will determine where a big chunk of that goes, at least $910 ten million of it. Holly, you've been covering the process to divvy up those funds, which started last week. Can you bring us up to speed on what's going on there?
1: Yeah. So basically what the legislature did, legislature did is they refired up the process that they normally use for House Bill 2, which is the main state budget bill, they broke back into subcommittees and they combined them. So we had kind of more, conc- or, um, they combined them so that, you know, you'd have the health department grouped in with corrections. So it wasn't as broad of a process, but basically restarted that whole process to hear input from state agencies, from stakeholders from the public about ways to spend this huge amount of money that is coming to Montana they finished up that process last week. Some of those subcommittees actually took votes on recommendations that they wanted to forward on for what, what this money should be spent on. I think notably the, the subcommittee that deals with the state health department just forwarded all the recommendations. They didn't really vote to narrow that field. And now what's happening this week is House Appropriations is going through this bill. It's House Bill 632 that's going to have all this COVID money. In it, um, and they're starting to they start the process yesterday. Going through education, both K twelve and higher ed, going through proposals there, and they're going to kind of work systematically through the rest of state government this week to come up with really rough outline of how this money might be spent.
0: So, do we know how they can and can't spend the money?
1: Yeah, yes and no, really. Um, there's some of this money comes with pretty strict rules. You know, some might be going toward the Supplemental Nutrition Program, and that's pretty directed there, but some of it's pretty broad. Um, there's pretty clear parameters right now that you can spend some of this money on infrastructure projects, so water and sewer, and then broadband is a really popular one that um, there's bipartisan agreement about, and then the rest of it generally needs to be spent on things related to COVID, You know, either economic fallout or societal fallout from that, but The rules aren't real specific yet, which is one of the issues that the legislature is dealing with is their their session runs 90 days and they've already adjusted that a little bit to put their end date now toward the middle middle of May to give them more time to deal with this. But they're also not really expecting specific rules on how some of this money can be spent until maybe July.
0: So you kind of started to touch on it, but could you lay out what sort of timeline the legislature is operating under for all this?
1: Yeah, so there are in early April is this uh, transmittal deadline and we talked about that before on this podcast where there's a rush to get bills from the chamber that they originate in. So this is a house bill that has this COVID money. It's got to clear the house by early April and then they sort of have a little more time to pause and look at if there's updated guidance on how this money can be spent, more information on programs that might go to, um, you know, just more ideas and more time. but. What they've done is they're not going to have Saturday sessions. They normally meet Saturdays as things get going toward the end of the session to just sort of speed up the process. They've decided not to do those to save those 90 days. So they'll have time through May. There is some talk. They take an Easter break. And there might be sort of an elongated Easter break or another break after Easter again just to give them a little more time. But it's a pretty rough timeline.
0: Okay, so... How much money has Montana gotten overall from COVID?
1: Yeah, so I we talked with Representative Lou Jones, a Republican Conrad, who chairs the House Appropriations Committee. And he says, you know, by his count, the state's gotten well north of five billion dollars um, from COVID relief really, from the federal government. You know, the first thing we got was the CARES Act, that was 1.25 billion, just about a year ago and that was money that then democratic governor steve bullock set up a task force to create recommendations on how to spend which was really frustrating for republican legislators who wanted more input they're having that chance now um and then there's been direct money that's gone to schools um, through this process other targeted money sent from the federal government there's also in january previous um it was called sort of cares 2 um, that put another, I think, $800 million for the legislature to dip up. So it's a huge amount of money. Just this $2.7 billion you know, that we're dealing with right now is more than the state's um, general fund dollars. So it's basically another, if you're just talking state money, another entire state budget that they're dealing with. Uh,
0: what are the priorities for spending this money?
1: You know, so we've heard Republicans say that they want to really focus on this is one-time-only money, and they want to make sure it goes for one-time-only spending. So the metaphor we keep hearing is don't plant an acorn and create this oak tree. Don't make a program that we have to come back and continue to pay for. Democrats are arguing there should be some flexibility there, that some good programs could get kick-started with this. Um, But there's a lot of really bipartisan agreement on like water, sewer projects, and a lot of those in Montana, you know, we, we do those projects every legislature and there's a list that's vetted and ranked. So those are kind of easier to address because they're kind of plug and play. Broadband is one where there's a lot of agreement on you know, the the details of how best to do it. There's not you know real consensus yet, but it looks like there's about a $350 million proposal moving through that looks to be the one that might be the vehicle for this. So some agreement there. It's interesting to me, I follow the health department closely and Republican Matt Regeer, who chairs that budget subcommittee, he's saying that it's pretty hard within that specific agency to do things that don't create new programs or would prop up programs just by the nature of the health department. So, you know, they're looking at childcare is a huge issue that's come up during this pandemic and lots of women struggle to re enter the workforce. Montana already had an issue with childcare before COVID. So, you know, instead of just, creating childcare programs that would need funding going forward, they're maybe discussing something like business incentive grants for people to open childcare operations. So it's a pretty tricky, I think, route to navigate, but lots of creativity and lots of discussion.
0: So how does this all fit into the main state budget bill?
1: Yeah, so it's super interesting. There's this component of this federal money that says that you can't use it to offset net revenue reduction. So basically, they don't want states to come in, cut a bunch of taxes and use this to offset it. So there was a slide that someone from the Legislative Fiscal Division put up that had this brick wall and it was House Bill 2 in the state budget on one side and then this COVID money on the other. And they were saying just keep them separate as much as possible to try to alleviate some issues we might have because Montana is looking at part of Gianforte his big tax cuts, you know, he wants to do, lower the top income tax rate, a couple other things, and there's other revenue coming in that should, you know, Republicans argue, make it a net, you know, you're not net cutting revenues, but there's been discussion about keeping kind of these two pots separate, but then, you know, we saw on the House floor, they were dealing with House Bill 2, the main budget bill, Monday this week, and I remember just off the top of my head, there were two points where within um, education funding, they pulled out some general fund spending they said look we don't need one of them is need-based aid for montana um, resident students in the youth system and they were saying look there's about 81 million coming to the youth system for from this arpa money about half of it can go to need based aid so we can pull back general fund spending there but some democrats are raising concern that that might violate some of the rules there's also maintenance of effort which is Basically saying, if you spent this much on education at your state budget over the last several budget cycles, you can't dramatically, you can't slash that. You need to keep your amount from the state side the same. this COVID aid can't really replace it. So they're trying to fit together, I think offset spending where possible, but getting clarity on how the rules of all that work will be pretty important.
0: So there are uh, rules articulated in this ARPA money that, that makes it so state legislatures can't just shuffle this money into their state budget and um, use it as a way of of cutting from state spending.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's I mean the the tax piece of it is the one that we're talking about the most right now and you know I think the legislative fiscal division is working up some sort of legal opinion to have some clarity there because there's just a lot of confusion. You know, we asked Jean Porte in a press conference last week about it. He said they're looking at it trying to get better understanding too, but generally the goal you know, from the federal government is that they just don't want this to be sort of a way for states to you know, pad other things they wanted to do. They do want it to go to COVID relief. And I should mention too, Senator Steve Daines, Republican senator, um, he wants Congress to actually get rid of that provision about you can't have net revenue reductions. Um, so he's bringing an effort to try to get at that in D.C., so... That's something to be watching too as this goes forward.
0: Do we have any indication um, about how the the budget being discussed in the legislature either mirrors or or departs from the budget proposed from the Gianforte administration?
1: Yeah. So they, um, Lou Jones again, he was saying that they're down about four hundred and eighteen million from what Gianforte proposed. So that's pretty common, the legislature, Republican-dominated legislature for the last several cycles, he wants to have a conservative budget. So they'll come in and trim spending. And then it is, you know, the budget's cleared the house now. Um, No, should we say that? The budget's about to clear the house and then going to move on to the Senate. And your legislators will say, there's a lot of bites at this apple. So programs might come back in, sort of things ebb and flow. But this morning, they put out what's called a status sheet, which is kind of an interesting way to look at it, looks at all the spending the state's proposing, all the revenue the state expects, looks at where we are right now, and we're still structurally in balance so at this point. We're still spending a lot more than we're expected to have in revenues, but that's pretty common this early in the process, and a lot of the bills that are spending money aren't going to advance through the process. So right now they're down a bit from Gianforte's. Um, we might see, you know, they have added back in some programs he's proposed that they've cut, but we'll see how it goes through the rest of the session.
0: Thanks Holly. Uh, I think I can speak for our readers and listeners um, in thanking you for making sense of what is a complex, um, difficult to follow process happening up at the Capitol. Seaborn, one of the stories we hit on last week is advancing again this week. Uh, We talked about the lawsuit against the new law that would let Republican Governor Greg Gianforte directly appoint judges. And earlier today, two of the three judges appointed by the former Democratic governor, Steve Bullock, had their confirmation hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee. If the Senate does not confirm those appointments, then Gianforte would be able to fill them with his own selections. How'd those hearings go today, Seaborn?
2: Yeah. And it's important to note um, right off the bat that um, these appointments are made when uh, a vacancy happens on the bench. So that's what's going on with three judges who uh, former Democratic Governor Steve Bullock appointed last year. Um, You know, I've watched these hearings before and um, this time was definitely through sort of a different lens. They've always been, um, you know, formal hearings, but uh, this time around, it felt a little more consequential just because uh, these judges were appointed by a past administration. And so, um, you know, today's hearings, we heard uh, two of those three. That's uh, Judge Michelle Levine from Cascade County in the 8th Judicial District and Judge Chris Abbott. He's from the uh, 1st Judicial District here in Lewis and Clark County. And so um, it was. it's interesting to hear. The, the kind of people who come out to support these judges, you know, both saw support from sitting judges and attorneys on both the prosecutorial side, the defense side, the civil side, uh, you know, members of law enforcement, former colleagues, um, and no opponents for, for either appointment. And so while during this process, the Senate Judiciary Committee kind of serves as the vetting panel for uh, these appointments, To decide whether or not they're going to go to the um senate floor for confirmation you know um judge chris abbott he comes from uh strictly a legal background and so he's worked in the past as a public defender uh he's also worked as a state attorney in a couple different capacities and so um most of the questions directed at him kind of fell into those lines judge levine um is actually a former legislator a uh, former Democratic legislator from Missoula. She um, was called into, onto the carpet for a couple of her past, um, past votes in the legislature. It's, it's not something that judges can speak about um, when, they, when they talk about policy. Anything that could come before them in terms of a case, uh, they can't speak about now. So that sort of gave her some shelter from those questions.
0: Yeah, and along that line, can you maybe summarize for listeners what some of that, those, that line of questioning was for both of them? You know, what kind of questions are these legislators asking
2: of judges? You know, the, um, the kind of questions Judge Levine was getting was sort of about her past um, experience or associations with groups like the Northern Plains Resource Council and Carroll's List. Um, votes that Judge Levine had cast as a lawmaker when she was in the House of Representatives, um, you know, on certain immigration policy, things like that. Um, generally speaking, the, um, the, the questions that lawmakers are, um, are putting to these judges tend to be, you know, how do they, this is a, you know, this is a GOP controlled um, committee. And so a lot of the questions, tend to fall along the lines of, you know, how do you how do you feel about the, the Second Amendment's um, strength uh, in the state? How do you feel about, um, you know, the federal government's relationship with state? Um, these are the kind of questions that uh, we would expect from GOP lawmakers, typically, while well, the d- Democratic lawmakers, I think, are asking questions more about um, why they become a judge, what What uh, areas do they specialize in, especially in terms of Indian law? Um, Senator Susan Weber um, put that question to both appointments or appointees uh, this morning.
0: And a lot of these policy questions that they're asking these judges to weigh in on, they can't actually answer them because of um, judicial conduct codes, right?
2: Yeah. And so that's true if you're um, even a candidate for judicial office, you know, at last year, as a reporter for the Missoulian, um, I interviewed uh, both candidates for the open judicial district uh, seat. And so that, uh, um, you know, that it's not something that they're able to, to answer simply because if that case were to come before them in court, then they'd uh, have pretty much already decided that case uh, publicly, which might not give either party very much confidence that they could get a fair hearing on that. So. It's uh, it's something in state law and they um, both appointments abided by that today. So for listeners following along,
0: um, can you explain to them a roadmap for where it goes from here? These we wait for executive action on these resolutions. Correct. And then where do they go from there?
2: Yeah. So we've got one more judicial appointment to hear. Um, that's Judge Peter Oman from uh, Gallatin County. That's the 18th uh, judicial district. His hearing is set for Friday. They, The committee didn't take executive action on uh, those appointments today, but once they do, they'll be voting on whether or not to send those appointments to the uh, Senate floor for uh, full confirma- confirmation by the Senate. All right, Seaborn, let's transition
0: here. Um, another thing you've been following this session, uh, COVID cases in the Capitol popped back up this week with another lawmaker testing positive. <clears throat> Uh, This is the sixth case for a legislator, and it's also the first time that the lawmaker is not allowing their name to be released. Can you help us understand what's going on there?
2: Yeah, this is um, one of those uh, things that was decided, I think, before the session got underway, is that it, it wouldn't be a requirement that lawmakers who test positive release their names to the public. Now, that's happened for each of the five lawmakers who've tested positive so far this session uh this one being the first that we don't know about raises a lot of questions like um where were they when they found out they were positive how long they been around the Capitol when they were um, possibly contagious you know um a lot of the the questions that arise simply from not releasing their name um might leave a lot of questions with the public but what we are seeing is that contact tracing is happening behind the scenes. What we don't know, what we don't see, we don't know. And so um, we spoke with one lawmaker yesterday who was deemed a close contact to that, Senator Bryce Bennett. And he's uh, a Democrat from Missoula who's been um, masked generally everywhere we've seen him around the Capitol. He's worked remotely uh, throughout the session. But he told me yesterday that it was frustrating being sidelined by Uh, circumstances that are totally outside of his control. Um, No matter how hard he tries to, you know, socially distance or wash his hands and those things, um, you know, this can still happen. And so uh, we're definitely seeing kind of mixed use of uh, certain public health recommendations through the session.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important for people who maybe aren't seeing the pictures and following videos from over the Capitol, but there is a very large contingent of lawmakers that are um, not following uh, right. the masking protocol. Um, is the COVID panel formed by lawmakers still meeting? Have we heard anything about decisions from that panel or,
2: or, or uh, meetings? Definitely not. Uh, that panel hasn't met since uh, mid-January, so we're talking about two months' time. Since this uh, panel that's formed with uh, legislative leadership that makes decisions on how to handle cases and how to handle the session uh, while this pandemic is still ongoing, um, you know, generally speaking, uh, they had set out, I think, as much plan as uh, certain lawmakers wanted to at the beginning of the session. There was a lot of talk about keeping things fluid and uh, trying to um, sort of react quickly and be agile when cases do arise. Um, one thing we did learn yesterday is that uh, Senator Jason Ellsworth, he's a Republican from Hamilton who also is the chair of the COVID panel, was deputized last month by the Lewis and Clark County Health Department as a as a deputy public health officer. And so um, we went and found that um, contract with the county and I spoke with uh, both the spokesman for the legislative COVID panel and the Lewis and Clark County Health Department And so the 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 legislative health panel says that this agreement allows them to better cooperate with the county when it comes to public health matters. And the county health department says that uh, this allows them to have a little more enforcement teeth um, when it comes to quarantine and isolation. That's if and when they ran into situations where legislators are not following isolation and quarantine orders given by the dedicated uh, contact tracer this session. We know there was a um, a small stumble with that back in February when the public health officer, uh, Deidre Neiman, had uh, a, basically sent a letter to lawmakers here saying that uh, there was concern among businesses that lawmakers weren't following local health guidelines. And at this point, um, we've seen, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the state and counties really relaxed their COVID policies as more as more people get vaccinated. But at this point, there were um, still multiple layers of uh, public health guidelines in place at the county level. And so that's what we learned. You
0: touched on a little bit when you were talking about um, Senator Bennett, but do do we have any sense of consternation from the minority party up at the Capitol about how uh, COVID is
2: being handled? I think um Holly's definitely in the perfect position to to talk about that. I think in in recent months we've heard we've heard lots from the minority party about that.
1: Yeah, so uh Democrats held one of their weekly press availability calls today and um yesterday when Seaborn was writing a story, we went back and listened to Senate Minority Leader Jill Konauer, who in one of the early COVID panel meetings, I think it was maybe their first one, um, pretty directly said, like, she wanted legislators to name themselves. Um, And she thought that would be, like, a really critical part of being able to do contact tracing because if you're a member of the public who's maybe in and out of the building real quick and that legislator didn't know your name, maybe you ran into the hallway or something and you talked, but that would be something that would, you know, understandably be hard to contact trace. So Konara this morning said she's pretty frustrated by this legislator not giving his name it's also the first legislator on the senate side um to test positive so kind of the senate's first time navigating this but you know, I asked konauer if there was another scheduled meeting of the COVID panel and she was pretty frustrated and said you know like i wouldn't know you'd have to ask senator ellsworth and the republican majority but there's been a lot of frustration from democrats just you know from even before the session started about it was pretty clear that you masking because legislators in their position weren't really, they didn't fall under when they're in the Capitol doing their jobs as legislators. They didn't fall under the then statewide mass mandate and kind of since that start, there's been a lot of frustration for the minority party.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and as I've been up at the Capitol and, and I've seen there, you know, we knew going into the session that there would be lawmakers that chose not to wear masks, um, and to me, it seemed kind of contagious. Now we're seeing legislative staff not wearing masks. We're seeing sergeant at arms sometimes not wearing masks. We're seeing family members not wearing masks. We're seeing lobbyists not wearing masks. Um, could you guys maybe talk about what the Capitol looks like right now?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think to start with, it's it was really weird going in at the very beginning because it felt like the pandemic was over in that building um like I've been taking it pretty seriously then but it for sure to me has been you know relaxing um based on what other people have seen you know like are relaxing they're keeping up with protocols and masking and I do think you know I think part of it is that some people are getting vaccinated um you might have more safety you know feel more safe personally up there and I did hear you know, one person who was a close contact of this new case um, had been, you know, received both doses of the vaccine, so they didn't actually have to quarantine, from what I've heard. But it's just, I think it's still pretty tricky and hard to navigate. And I think there's cases that, you know, there's just rumors around the building of cases that we're not hearing about or understanding, whether it's staff or elsewhere. But it still is, I think, pretty interesting, even as it seems like the trajectory of COVID, at least, it has been getting better in Montana. I think Missoula had news this morning that they're concerned about variants in case spreading there. And um, But yeah, it's just been an interesting thing to observe.
2: Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I'd say also that with um, the vaccine clinic that's open in the basement of the Capitol, we've seen lawmakers have quicker access to that. And so um, even some... Democratic lawmakers who were uh, either participating remotely before or um, wearing masks completely uh, now have um, sort of relaxed, like, you know, how, how they um, operate around the Capitol with or without a mask in person. Um, you know, the the number of people around the Capitol seems to whether it's lawmakers or uh, members of the public who are participating in these hearings seems to have increased to me. And that's just from um, being around the Capitol uh, kind of on a daily basis. But um, certainly, uh, I think uh, this week is a reminder that um, we're certainly not over. You know, it's a um, it's a pretty different scene from Idaho, which we saw shut down their legislature last week. And, you know, we've had six cases total since the start of the session in January. Um, they had six lawmakers test positive within the span of a week and that um, that prompted the Idaho legislature to shut down for a few weeks just to settle things down in case they might have that um, more contagious variant ripping through the Capitol there. And so um, here it doesn't seem like we've been uh, relatively close to um, having to shut down the the session. Um, but like Holly said, there's there's plenty of cases um, I think among staff that we that we haven't heard about or, or certainly don't get announced the same way that. Um, we hear about when public officials have caught the virus.
1: Yeah, I've probably, yeah. I probably, I can think of a handful of lobbyists at the top of my head who have told me they've tested positive um, during the session and you know, we don't really have any way to track those cases at all because those aren't state employees who would be tested through channels where we can request information about.
0: Yeah, and I'd like to just before we switch topics here, remind listeners that, uh, you know, listeners from across the state and other counties that here in Lewis and Clark County, although there isn't a state mask, statewide mask mandate, uh, we still do have a mask mandate in place in Lewis and Clark County. Um, and um, that pertains to everybody except lawmakers in the Capitol. Um, okay, switching gears, uh, Tom you have a whole bunch of legislation, um, in your orbit that has either, uh, moved on or, or has died away. Um, and I think that, um, we should hear from you about kind of a status update on all those bills.
3: Uh, sure, Tom. Yeah. It's kind of a, a post-transmittal rapid fire of, uh, wildlife and, uh, different types of bills like that. Um, So pretty interesting, you know, we, we get the big buildup and then some things move faster than others. And it seems like in the last, uh, a week or so, we've seen a lot of movement, um, things have either been tabled or some things have have already passed completely. So, um, one bill that, that is pretty interesting. It's, um, the muzzleloader heritage hunt bill, um, would establish a muzzleloader season in Montana. That's HB 242, uh, from Caleb Hinkle. Um, that one's actually scheduled for third reading today. So that one looks like it's, it's going to go through a um, pretty party line vote on that. Um, another one that's already gone through is to uh, return um, FWB conservation easements um, to the, the purview of the land board um, again, party lines, but that was after a, a, a pretty big controversy under uh, former governor, Steve Bullock. And, and this would be the second straight session that, that this bill has passed. Um couple other bills that are going through, um, you know, there's been a lot written about these wolf bills. Um, two of them have passed a couple of them are still, um, in the process. Um, so the two bills from, uh, uh, representative Paul Fielder, Republican of Thompson falls, um, one would be the, uh, to allow snaring of wolves. And then the other one was to extend the trapping season. Uh, both those have passed, uh, you know, basically party lines as, as well. Um, there's some other bills out there though that are that are kind of interesting how they have shook out. Um, there was two sort of competing Republican bills um, that would add a couple extra members to the Montana Fish and Wildlife Commission. Um, that's a super high-profile board deals with everything FWP, so anything um, you know, uh, hunting regulations, trapping regulations, animal transplants. Um, so you know, pretty big issues here in Montana. Um, the one from Senator Mike Lang. Um, has been tabled. Um, that one went a little bit farther than um, the other one that actually passed. Um, so that one would have added um, a mandate that four of the seven members under under the expanded commission would have to be um, landowners involved in agriculture. So um, that one obviously got a lot of attention. Um, the other one that would basically just add a couple of extra commissioners and sort of redefine um, where they'd represent, that one's actually seen a lot of support. Um, from uh, a lot of the hunting advocacy groups. Um, it's It's been a pretty interesting road with that bill, though. Um, that's another fielder bill. It uh, saw almost universal support in the House, um, and but since it's hit the Senate, it's only passed along party lines. Um, not 100% sure what's going on there. I've, I've done a little asking on that, but I haven't gotten a real, uh, real um, clue into what sort of um, the Democrats are thinking in the Senate. Why? Why? Um, they have such a different opinion of this bill than in the House. Um, a couple of them that have gone down though. Um, Senator Joe Conauer, she's uh, the Senate Minority Leader, had a bill that would uh, allow, um, a judge to su- suspend hunting and fishing licenses for somebody caught trespassing to um, collect antlers. Um, that bill got tabled, and then one from uh Senator or Representative Denley Logie, uh, is a Republican. Um. It would have made a lot of uh, hunting licenses uh, once in a lifetime. So your moose, sheep, and goat—if you drew that—were um, successful in getting one of those animals. Um, that would be a one-and-done deal for for your life. That one um, passed pretty narrowly in the House and then was tabled in the Senate. Uh, the really big, high-profile one, sort of in the second half here, is um, HB five hundred five. That's from uh, Speaker of the House Wiley Galt. Um, that in a in a pretty dramatic um i would say uh hearing saw just a huge outpouring from from hunters hunter advocacy groups who were very upset about this bill uh both for how it was brought um, and how um the contents of it so um that that that's the bill that would allow for landowner sponsored non-resident elk licenses as well as um some enhanced bonus points if you want to um, hunt a cow on private land. Um, So that bill um, ended up uh, tying on a 99 vote. So three Republicans broke with the rest of the Republicans on the, the house fish, Wildlife, and parks committee. And that tied um, which it does not advance on a tie. Um, There's certainly still some avenues. It could come back um, and it's not clear quite yet. What's going to happen with that. It could, uh, either go under reconsideration um, in the committee, so the committee could decide to uh, reconsider their vote and bring it back, or um, Galt could attempt to blast it onto the House floor for the full body's consideration. Um, even in in committee, as they were taking that up, though, um, I, I think there was s- certainly some, some idea that they wanted to see some changes to the bill as formed um, before they voted it down or voted on a tie, um, they saw a pretty significant amendment, which would uh, drop the number of landowner tags, um, kind of make it more uh, democratic as far as how many tags you would get based on how big a landowner you were, and then drop the number of bonus points too. So um, we'll we'll see what happens with that one. I I don't like to speculate on what I think will happen, but I think there's a chance we could at least see um, some attempt on that again. Yeah. And I, would like to remind listeners to
0: hop back to episode 10, where we really dig into, um, proponent and opponent arguments on HB 505.
3: Yeah. Um, and I guess the other thing we, we want to talk a little bit about is, uh, we're starting to, uh, to hit those warmer months. Um, uh, it is officially spring in Montana. That means, uh, outdoor recreation. Uh, and I think we can all remember what happened last year. Um, COVID shut everything down and, uh, Montanans and some non-residents, uh, took to the outdoors for, for some respite and some social distancing. So, uh, what I found pretty interesting is that, um, we just set all kinds of records last year in terms of visitation at state parks, um, number of watercraft inspected for aquatic invasive species, um, hunting licenses were up, fishing licenses were up. So no doubt, um, the, this is something that people have talked about, but it's also packed up by the data that we saw people really go to the outdoors. Um, but, you know, restrictions are easing. Uh, a lot of, a lot of counties are, are going away from them. The statewide mandates are, are largely gone. Um, so I did some asking and uh, talking with FWP folks just about sort of what they expect this year. And, and that was a pretty interesting conversation and, and a little bit surprising to me. Um, they don't expect numbers to dip back down as we sort of return to a new normal. Um, a lot of people do think that people either sort of took up outdoor activities for the first time or, uh, I guess what you would say, rediscover. Maybe they picked up a shotgun or a fishing rod for the first time in 20 years and, and sort of tried it out again. And um, they think that's going to continue, that there's going to be staying power with this this effort to uh, um, or this necessity um, based on, on sort of quarantines and things like that to, to get outside that it's going to keep going. Do we have any idea from FWP
0: where maybe some of their resource managements um, were overloaded
3: based on the amount of people out recreating? Sure, Tom. So uh, a couple things, um, state parks, definitely, you know, the more people you got there, the more, you know, for example, times you have to clean the bathroom, that kind of stuff. Um, What was really interesting to me is we have what's called a one 800 Tipmont. Um, It's a reporting line for fish and wildlife violations. Um, And they saw last year, a huge surge. Um, It was like, uh, went from like 5,000 total calls to 6,800 total calls in a, in a single year. Um, And the biggest part they saw there was um, the aquatic invasive species calls. Those were up um, like 114% over prior year. Um, So what those are, are largely drive-bys. So somebody is required to stop with a watercraft to have it inspected and they don't do that. So FWP has been having to, um, you know, ship game wardens to that, those sorts of stations to, uh, they're, they're the primary ones who enforce that, that law. Other, other law enforcement can too, you know, MHP does some of it, but um, it's primarily game wardens that are, are trying to keep uh, aquatic invasive species out of our, our waterways. So, Tom, where are uh, these predictions coming from? So I I think one thing that's important to know is it's pretty hard to predict what's going to happen in the future with, with some of these. Um, but w- what's coming from is basically internal discussions at places like Fish, Wildlife, and Parks where they're saying, um, you know, we need to be ready for this if it happens again or even increases. So, um, you know, the state is definitely not taking a look at at the the trend and the long-term trend and the growth of the industry. And then the huge pulse from last year and saying, well, we think it's going to go back down They're, they're, they're getting ready for another big year. All right. Thanks,
0: Tom. Um, I think that's, you know, we talked about it on a previous episode, but that's kind of the blessing of living in Montana in a pandemic is that um, we're able to um, go outside and enjoy, you know, the resources that this state offers. So, Um, could be another summer of, you know, crowded rivers and running into other hunters in the backcountry. Holly, we're hearing echoes of the 2015 legislative session, Um, much consternation over dress code going on at the Capitol. Can you fill us in on what that conversation is like?
1: So last week, the House Rules Committee held a meeting, um, and they didn't advertise beforehand what it was about, but I went up and Sat through that meeting, um, and they're getting into dress code issues. Um, a lot of this is focusing around there's a legislator who doesn't wear a tie on the floor or in committee hearings. And we've had um, one representative, Republican Representative Derek Skees of Cal Spelling Committee, raised an issue over this. And then Representative Mark Nolan, a Republican from Big Fork, had an objection on the House floor to it, which triggered Speaker of the House, Wiley saying that he wanted the rules committee to address this so they called them in for a meeting Um, representative ski said that he really didn't want to get into a a situation where they were sort of rehashing or looking at past dress codes like the 2015 one there was a lot of um, pretty bad press i think for republicans about that dress code because it got into things like skirt length and necklines for women in the Capitol and just was, you know, criticized as being pretty sexist. So Skis was trying to sort of direct the conversation away from that. But it ended up there with some Republicans on the committee saying, if there weren't specifics, you know, like something that said specifically, you have to wear a tie, you have to wear a jacket, women should be sensitive to skirt length, those sorts of things that People wouldn't really understand what they should or shouldn't be doing. Um Skies was saying that there should be it would be okay to just have you know a sentence or something added to the rules that would say, you know, dress in a manner that is befitting of the House of Representatives and the job we have. So they didn't really take specific action that meeting. They sort of voted to agree to examine looking at the 2015 dress code. And then they're coming back for a meeting Thursday evening to sort of pick it up and maybe take some sort of specific action.
0: So is this legislator not that's not wearing a tie? uh, Is there a double standard there? Are we seeing other legislators not following the dress code that aren't getting called out?
1: You know, I've seen some things that there's not a real specific dress code in place. So there's nothing like in the rules for legislators that say, you know, you must wear a jacket or something like that. There are specific rules for you know, members of the press to have access to the floors. There are a specific dress code for pages and the Rostrum staff, which is something I learned through this process. I didn't know that they had that sort of specified. But, you know, I've seen legislators, um, you know, I've, I've always thought that it was a no-no for their decorum to wear, you know, to have like bare arms or not have a jacket on the house floor. And I've seen that happen. Um, so there are, you know, just some, some things like that, that I think pop up from time to time. And, um, you know, I think to people I've heard issues with not wearing name badges, that kind of stuff. So I think, and then uh, we did, I think this is interesting too, like the discussion got a little bit into decorum. Um, and, you know, how dress code fits into quorum and issues that we've heard people raise about how legislators treat each other in committees and on the House floor this session. And it kind of an overall interesting discussion, I think, of kind of temperature tanking at this point in the session.
0: Are we hearing consternation from other lawmakers that think that maybe this isn't the most important topic to be discussed at the Capitol right now?
1: Yeah, so I think in the House Rules Committee, Representative Kim Abbott of Helena, who's the minority leader in the House, she, you know, Abbott really clearly articulated that from a Democrat's perspective, this wasn't the best use of their time. Abbott was saying you know, we spent all day trying to figure out how to spend this you know, billions of dollars in ARPA money that we talked about at the start of this podcast coming to Montana and that why are we spending our time talking about the dress code? So we have heard from Democrats pretty
0: specifically that that's not
1: something they think is a valuable use of the legislature's
0: time. Thanks, Holly. Um, That's another episode of Big Sky Lead. Uh, If you want to keep hearing this, make sure to subscribe wherever podcasts are found. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks, Tom.